Hi, you're listening to the Full Stack Educator Podcast. We provide relevant resources to new and aspiring independent school leaders to help you grow, succeed at work, and have a positive impact on the lives of students. I'm Michael. And I'm Matt. On this podcast, we have insightful conversations with leaders from across all areas of independent school education. One of the largest subsets of independent schools are faith-based schools and schools that intentionally work to support students' spiritual well-being and development. However, few ed leadership programs prepare individuals to effectively lead the faith component of their schools. Stephanie Williams O'Brien is the lead pastor at Mill City Church in Northeast Minneapolis. She is also a professor of ministry at Bethel University and Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota. Stephanie is a sought-after leadership coach and speaker. She is also the co-host of the Lead Stories podcast. Her first book, Stay Curious, How Questions and Doubts Can Save Your Faith, was released in the fall of 2019. Here is our conversation with Stephanie Williams O'Brien about leading in a faith setting. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us today. We're so excited to have you on our podcast, and I can't wait to have a conversation with you about faith, leadership, and teaching. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Uh, Could we just start by asking you to tell a little bit about your journey within education and also in leadership? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm a huge like education-based person in the sense that I just feel like education paired with experience is going to produce just the best option for young people and either for even for adults as they could do continuing ed. Um, I I grew up in the Twin Cities area in, in Minneapolis and St. Paul up in Minnesota. Um, so I uh, went to some public schools for a little while and then ended up in middle school and high school going to a a Christian private school here in the Twin Cities called Minnehaha Academy. I'm still very involved there, part of uh, alumni support and everything. And um, that was a great experience for me. I'm I'm glad I got to experience both public and private school. I think it gave me some good experiences as I came into adulthood. And then for my college experience, I went to Bethel University in St. Paul here. to be honest, mostly to play ice hockey. I was a hockey player and <laughs> oh, <laughs> that wow. feels like a different life now, but I was excited to play hockey at Bethel. And uh, turns out that, of course, much more than hockey ended up being the richness of that experience at Bethel. Um, I studied psychology and leadership and then um, just felt the sense of call to, to step into ministry leadership. I didn't really know what that would mean. So I just kept studying leadership and had a, had a sense that my faith would have something to do with that. Ended up going to get a master's of divinity, which if you're not totally familiar with the phrase, it's a little bit strange for some people's ears. It's basically pastor school. And it's where ministers, pastors, missionaries might get trained in the master's degree. It's a very long degree. It's many, many credits, almost a hundred credits, which is a lot for a master's oh, degree wow. these days. I know. And um, so I did that and um, somewhere in there, felt the the call to start a new church, help start a new church with actually one of my seminary classmates. And that was 12 years ago, and we're still going strong here in the urban part of Minneapolis. Uh, and now I actually am on the adjunct faculty at Bethel, and I teach preaching, and I teach communication for the undergrad program, um, just adjunct, which has been a great thing. I love having one foot in the um, ministry world and in a church, and then one foot in the academy. I love it. Wonderful. So our audience on the Full Stack Educator podcast is mm-hmm. um, leaders and aspiring leaders of independent schools throughout uh, the United States and even around the world. And a large subset of independent schools are faith-based. Mm-hmm. Uh, we uh, spoke with somebody earlier this season uh, about a study conducted by Ed Choice that showed many uh, leaders and many teachers in faith-based independent schools feel that their training program did not adequately prepare them for that. It didn't really address the issue of how to lead or how to teach in a faith-based school. So Mm -hmm. what ways would you say leading in a faith-based environment is different from other forms of leadership? You know, I I think that um, all leadership includes an important aspect of meaning. Um, In some ways, leadership is meaning-making. You're helping people understand and make meaning of the experiences they're having. And so um, helping students understand their experience, helping other faculty and staff understand, you know, in some ways we talk about leadership and we say it's casting a vision, but in some ways it's kind of discovering what's happening within these folks and helping them 
to to con- make some conclusions about ways to like where to go next based on who we have here, who are we leading? And so I think with faith-based spaces, we just tap into that aspect of meaning from a faith perspective in a different way. I wouldn't want to say that people who are not necessarily affiliated with a religion or wouldn't consider themselves quote-unquote faith-based are not people of meaning. Of course they are. But leading in a faith-based space means that the the meaning-making that comes from that particular understanding of faith, um, say, for instance, a Protestant perspective or a Catholic perspective of the Christian faith, I think there is this depth of meaning that happens in that sphere then that when done well can be integrated, I think, really well within leadership and uh, understanding meaning bigger than just merely a, a, a religious set of beliefs, but really a sense of uh, worldview and what this has come to, to how people come up under understand themselves through the lens of their faith and uh, their relationship with God or however they picture that. So I would say it has a lot to do with, with tapping into that sense of meaning that people already have or helping to make meaning uh, and depth of meaning from the things that are coming up to the surface in their life as you're leading them. I love that concept. Um, and I loved how you compared the, a, a person with vision to a person who's seeking to find meaning. Um, can both of those concepts coexist? Can you have a strong vision and a strong direction and goals while still fi- helping people find meaning in the current setting? Yeah, I, I absolutely think that you can. I think it's when those two things get disjointed and disconnected from each other when hmm. uh, you can say as much vision as you want, but it's not going to be realized. <laughs> you can you can uh, be very charismatic and, and cast a wonderful vision um, and I've had some leaders in my life who I thought, man, this person can really cast a vision. Um, mm-hmm. But that did not result in getting there. So um, I, I think of my in, in interact, interaction right now with higher ed and some of the struggles that higher ed's going through. I'm sure many of the audience, uh, has, whether that's your field or not, knows that higher ed is under a, quite a bit of change right now. And so there's no one who can come in and say, we're going to be the most elite sought after, you know, uh, College of Arts and Sciences in the Midwest. I mean, you can say that, but what's really going on in your team? What's really, how are people experiencing the actual space that they're inhabiting? Um, I think that when you connect with that first and from that place, the vision emerges, connecting with the heart and the, and the passions of the people that you're leading, that's when you're really going to have a deep connection with the vision for the future, with the reality now, and those that that go, I think that hand in hand is what allows us to step at least towards that vision in a real way. In some ways, people would say like a true vision is never going to be realized. You know, ending hunger or ending sometimes people's vision is huge. You know, we're gonna we're gonna right. close the education gap and some of those things. Yeah. And I'm like so for that. I'm so for that. But at the same time, what we really want is just to see that we're making some progress, right? And so, while that vision right. might be larger than life, and that's okay. Um, to really see some progress in that general direction, I think starts with discovering what's already happening amongst those people. And I think I would say as a person of faith, then what is, what is God already doing in their life and in their heart? And how can we discover what that is through dialogue and conversation so that the, the meaning making can be done by the leader and that meaning can be connected then to the larger vision for the organization. So would you say that pursuing meeting, pursuing the, the presence of God and, and God working in our lives, finding out what that is, would you say that's goal number one, or is that more of a value by which decisions should be made? Yeah, I, I mean, I would say that. I, I've had a lot of conversations with folks that are in a similar space to me who uh, kind of push back on it a little bit to say, well you know, God is very mysterious. How do we know exactly what God's doing? And I absolutely agree. Um, God is very mysterious in the concept of God and what exactly God's doing in the world. But my perspective is that the agency of God, um, the Christian understanding of God, meaning that God is still alive and active and moving in the world, um, spiritually speaking. So uh, some perspectives of God is that maybe God created the world and is far, far away and, you know, kind of spun the world and said, good luck. But I, I understanding of God is that God is interacting with us still and that while that is mysterious, there's an opportunity there to engage with God and God's spirit, so to speak, and to say, what is God doing first and foremost? How is God moving and how can we join that? Um, versus maybe saying, here's my great plans. I really hope that these five goals can be hit in the next couple of years. God, if you could bless that, that would be great. And let's go from there. You know, I think, I really do think that, that asking the question first, what do we think God might already be doing? Um, while 
one of the things God might be doing is giving us creativity for goals, of course. But if we start with that question, I think we might end up in a place that we wouldn't expect. And um, even even in a place that we never would have dreamed up, goals that we never would have had. I'll tell you, in my church setting, there are things that we've experienced that I tell you, there's no way it would have been a part of a strategic plan. <laughs> but the openness to uh, to a sense of of what God might do that we wouldn't have had on our plan has led us to some pretty incredible stories. I'll tell you that. And um, I, I, I'll be the first to admit I wasn't creative enough to put that on the goal sheet. <laughs> right. Um, if you're a mid management leader, mm-hmm. say you're a division head, uh, you're not the head of school. You might not even be on the, you know, the heads team or the, the leadership, the ultimate leadership team. Mm-hmm. How do you approach that uh, if you feel God is working in a particular area in your community and you want to keep pursuing that and you see a strategic plan that's going, maybe not even in an opposite direction, but just in a different direction that's not addressing it. We can certainly carry that up the chain, but, but wouldn't there be a tension there? Um, how, do we, how do we approach that as a community if, if, if everyone sees God moving in, in ways that are all very real to them? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think that um, in, in some ways, um, something that I've seen happen, and if people are really truly open, then what kind of happens is that there's a number of people who, um, the, in, in the Bible, it talks about, it seems good to us in the Holy Spirit, like a group of people are like, oh, it's almost the fact that we all had this sense that maybe is confirming that it could be something God is doing. Um, but at the same time, I think that there's a place for humility for us in the different roles that we're in. Um, I've been in lots of different roles in my life and there is something about, um, I mean, just being willing to serve somebody else's vision while you're learning and always, always, always having the hat on at the same time. What would I do if I were them? How would I lead this differently? Maybe not because they're doing it wrong, but because I'm a different person than them. That's the way to get prepared for the next space that you might find yourself in as a leader. If you're in those early stages or middle management, just starting to pay attention to what those leaders are doing around you. And while you're learning to have your antenna up for what God might be doing or what you feel in your gut, uh, you can bring those things, of course, and, and use your voice when it's appropriate. Um, but there's also this balance of of humility and saying some of this is preparation for the time when you would have that seat and that space. And so uh, I think a good leader will try to find ways to listen and hear what might be happening amongst those other leaders below them. I know that's what I'm trying to do. Um, but you might not find yourself with a leader like that right now. And I understand that. Um, oh, and sure. so there's an opportunity to to say, what does it look like? What would I do differently? And is there a spot for me to use my voice in this space? Yeah. So you touched on um, sort of uh, group confirmation. Um, there's yeah. got to be a, a better term for that uh, spiritually. But, yeah. but we'll say, you know, the sense that that everyone is feeling the same thing, which can be very confirming. And then uh, keep keeping humility, obviously, when talking with leaders too. And I, I love that you touched on this idea of um, what what would I do differently if I yeah. were in their shoes as a leader? That's a great way to prepare. So in, in that kind of vein, um, I would consider that a skill to be able to constantly ask that question. What other skills do you think people need to be a leader of faith? I think I think being people who are agile, who can, I mean, if I, I keep using this language, like, well, looking for what God might be doing or trying to make meaning, well, then there needs to be like ready to respond to what that might be. Uh-huh. And I know that, you know, institutions, we all are leading in institutions, institutions by, by kind of their definition aren't super agile, but some of the spaces within are able to be agile. There's some areas of leadership for all leaders where they can be agile and respond. I mean, take, take for instance, uh, paying attention to your students in a, in a certain class and you thought you were taking the lesson in a certain way, but man, they're getting really excited about this other thing. Like, wouldn't you be want, want to be someone who could be agile enough to follow their curiosity and their passion for a subject and take it a little bit differently that day? Um, there's different spaces where that agile, responsive leadership, I think, can come in um, as educators. And I think that can be a great skill. Um, I think also just emotional intelligence. I, I talk about emotional intelligence a lot and just being people who are willing to say, it starts with my own self-awareness of my own emotions. Um, when, you're, when you're leading at any level, you've got people ahead of you, behind you, peers. It's, it, it's easy to get defensive. It's easy to feel like you're not being heard and lots of different things. 
Well, it starts with being able to understand yourself and how are you feeling? What emotions am I having? Let me at least be able to answer that question. And then from there, I can start to try to understand the other folks on my team, try to understand where they're coming from. And then perhaps depending on your space of leadership can begin to be a part of managing those relationships and and moving forward and and then being ready to do that when you do step into a leadership position, maybe as a team lead or something like that. Um, So those are a few skills that come to mind right away. And then of course, um, and I think you can imagine that I would go this way. I think curiosity is a huge, a huge skill that uh, we can cultivate in our lives to be people who can lead um, in these types of settings. I think that it's contagious. I think curiosity is contagious. And if we want our students to learn, then of course we want them to have a curiosity for learning. We want them to wonder and want to know more and want to understand things. And of course, there's a certain aspect of that curiosity and faith. But I think in general, the curiosity about the world, the curiosity about history, um, how the world works is the kind of thing that gives students a passion for math or science. You know, it's the thing that gives them a passion to, to dig into different areas of study. And I think that's what we'd hope for for our students. But I think it starts with us. Are we still curious people or did we, so to speak, grow out of it? And how can that be a contagious factor um, from the administration on down? In terms of curiosity, where do you see that playing out as a teacher? I think what you're getting at is that has to happen in us personally, but that's also something that we want to encourage among our students. Um, Mm -hmm. Where are the right places besides, uh, you know, an Old Testament history class (laughs) or a world (laughs) religions class that that curiosity can can manifest itself? Well, I mean, I, I would take the perspective that every area of study has a space in which it can be integrated with a concept with the concept of faith and what that means. I think of it as maybe my easiest way to think of it from a theological perspective or an understanding of God would be um, that the things that humans feel, feel drawn towards and are curious to learn about, curious to be about, and then eventually the vocations that people would take, of course, as jobs, like we're, we're imaging God. We, the Bible says we're made in God's image, which is like, that's a talk about a mysterious statement, but we're, we're, we're people who do things the way like that, that kind of point back to who God is. So for instance, God created the world. However you understand exactly how God did that, God is a creative being. And so when humans are being creative, we are imaging God. We're being creative just like our creator. When humans are, are really passionate about math and they're figuring out how to take complex concepts and make order from chaos, well, that's described in the beginning of Genesis is what God does. God takes the chaos and makes order. And that's imaging God. When we are people who love working with our hands and love seeing how uh, substances and things in the world can come together to create things like plumbing and, you know, electricity and all that stuff, man, that's, that's like God talks about how he created humans to care for the earth and to use its resources in order to, to lead humans towards flourishing. And so people are, are, imaging God. They're, they're being creative just like their creator when they are drawn to any one of the subjects we might be teaching. And so even just a sense of, of curiosity about, well, so what, is, so what does that mean God is, thinks about what I'm studying or what, you know, I'm passionate about history and that's why I teach it. How, how does God come to understand, like, what does that have to do with, with, with my faith? And what does it have to do with the faith that these students may or may not have, right? Some of them might um, not have a personal understanding of faith yet. But if there's an integration for that, for, the, for people educating personally, I think it comes out in those conversations and can be cultivated in their own life to talk about it. I think some people listening who are leading in a faith-based space genuinely have some work to do to think about the integration of their faith with their area of expertise and, the, and what they're teaching. Um, and how do I talk about that with a second grader compared to how do I talk about with a seventh grader? Um, I find that to be an exciting conversation. It's not easy. I think it's exciting and can lead to some real sparks of curiosity for young people as they're in different stages of their learning. Yeah, that's a great challenge to, to everyone in, a, in an educational space to be thinking about how their faith integrates into what they're doing on a daily basis. Um, mm-hmm. So this idea of curiosity has come up in the last couple of questions that Matt asked. And uh, you just recently, relatively recently released a book called Stay Curious, How Questions and doubts can save your faith. And uh, I, I, I've read it and it's amazing. I love it. I've been recommending it to everybody. Um, and I'd Thank love you. to ask you just a couple of questions uh, that come from some parts of the book. The, the first one, uh, just starting off with curiosity, um, 
you know, it's in the word curious is obviously in the title. Uh, but what role do you believe curiosity plays in, in one's faith journey? And how does curiosity work to develop and deepen our faith? Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, you know, the subtitle being how questions and doubts can save your faith. You know, it sounds like maybe that was just trying to be catchy. But I truly, I truly believe that the like cultivating curiosity and even even stepping towards questions and maybe even doubt can really be a, a, a saving space for some people's faith. Because if you think of faith as almost like a little fire that's lit, I think of curiosity as the thing that keeps it burning. And when that curiosity goes out, so does that flame. And for some people, there's a sense of, well, I'm going to stay connected to this because this is who I am and my understanding of God. And there's nothing wrong with that. However, for many people, studies would show that if that curiosity and those questions and that sense that there's more to God than I fully understand now, it causes there to be a sense of apathy and a sense of kind of checking out of that pursuit. Um, I mean, just think of it as an, in a relationship with somebody else. If you feel like you've got, you've know everything you need to know about your spouse, um, that doesn't mean you're not committed to them, but it's going to definitely take a turn for the relationship. If there's nothing new to discover about them, if you can't, can't imagine new things you might discover together, um, it really does affect a relationship. Um, some of us have been there in our close relationships. And so I think it's similar in a relationship with God. If we come to a spot where we think, well, I've got God figured out, it fits in my catechisms, it fits in my belief statements, doesn't mean those belief statements are wrong. I'm just saying there's got to be even more depth behind that and more to discover. Any, any finite human, it would take more than 10, 20, how many lifetimes to understand an infinite God? And so I think that the role that curiosity plays is to keep that sense of wonder that keeps the, the motivation for us to keep pursuing this vital, what I would say is a vital relationship in our life. And um, in the book, I, re I um, talk about a Barna study that was done a few years ago, talking about people who've gone through seasons of doubting their faith, questioning their faith, and those who pursued those questions and doubts instead of running away from them. Uh, the study shows that more, more of them either came back to a spot where they said, my faith is just as strong as it was before that season of questioning and doubting, or quite a few of them said it was more vibrant and more and, and deeper and more meaningful to me. And so in some ways, I think uh, people might ask me, are you concerned as a pastor that some people might doubt or question their faith? Or would I be concerned about a high schooler or a junior higher uh, questioning their faith? I would say, well, I'm almost more concerned if they never do because I would want for them to have that sense of personal, they've owned their faith, they understand it for themselves. Does it mean they might come out on the other side with a little bit different understanding of their faith than they were, you know, either raised in their home or in their school? Perhaps, but that's better than not having one altogether, which is what the studies do show if people don't take a pursuit of curiosity and wonder about their faith or want to make it their own. Um, many just kind of walk away. I think of it as almost like fading away. It fades away in their life. Um, and I see that happening quite a bit. And people talk about that a lot. Why, why are some people, young people leaving faith? Why are people now in their 20s, 30s, 40s even leaving faith? You know, I, I, I don't think, I mean, sometimes it could be because they qu had questions, but I'm not sure it's the questions themselves. I think it's the fact that our schools and our churches didn't create space for those questions. And so if the space wasn't there, then fading away and walking away seemed like the only option for some people. And so I wonder about how in our educational space, we can teach a sense of doctrine or, hey, this is the faith statements of this school or this denomination that this school is coming from, um, while at the same time posing the question to students, what do you think about that? Have you thought about that? Have you pursued this? Here's the conclusions that this tradition came to. What do you think about that? Um, and encouraging them to pursue it and to wonder about it and to uh, pursue, pursue the questions in a deeper way and how that might actually lead to a much more uh, depth, the deeper faith, but also a sense of more vibrant and alive and active in their life. That's wonderful. I love the framing of uh, curiosity being a fuel for faith. I mean, it makes so much sense that, you know, if you're not interested enough to be curious about something, then how could you, how could you really be dedicated to it or, or grow in it throughout your life? I mean, curiosity, it, it's the same you know, in other areas, uh, whether you're talking about uh, a spouse, you know, if you're not curious or interested in your spouse, you're not going to be growing in a relationship and academic subjects, right? Like curiosity drives progress. Just now you referenced a few studies. That was something else I really appreciated about your book. I, I read a good bit of, of sort of faith-based genre work. And uh, I was really impressed with how many studies you cited and that they're 
I, I did not realize there were so many studies on faith that existed. It was really interesting. Um, yeah, I, I love reading that kind of stuff. And I'm also really, um, like I said, I studied psychology. So I love the intersection of faith and psychology as well. In the book, I talk a little bit about some of those um, stages of faith that have been kind of birthed out of um, just different different understanding of psychological, uh, pro- like how people grow and, pro- and progress yeah. and have experiences psychologically. And I think there's a lot of integration there. It's been easy. It's always been easy for me to see those those the hand in hand aspect of psychology and faith and science. I know that's difficult for some people, but I, I really see them all flowing together in a pretty beautiful way. So when we're thinking specifically about leaders and the, the people who report directly to them, um, how can leaders work to encourage and support those that they lead to, to, to be comfortable um, enough to be curious and engage with questions and doubts uh, productively? Yeah. So you're saying specifically a leader of other, other leaders, like other teachers. A leader of people. So let's say the principal of a school working with, with teachers, um, how can a principal, uh, support, you know, their teachers in, in being curious enough to, or being curious and engaging with questions and doubts in a productive way? I think, I think it's important to recognize that there is a real, reality of anxiety, that anxiety is something that we're just really swimming in around. I'm sure you guys have talked about this or you have thought about this in your own spaces, but um, we, we live in a pretty anxious world. And um, a lot of our young people are experiencing that, that life of anxiety coming at them. And so I think that questions and doubts, they represent the reality of how much uncertainty we really have. I, I kind of take the perspective that we don't really have uh, a lot of certainty that we think we have. It's kind of a myth or kind of a mirage. And um, of course, the human psyche wants to have that certainty in order to just, you know, keep taking steps every day. But what I would encourage people towards is if we're, if, if the, if being honest about how we don't have certainty makes people anxious, then what I think we need to lean more towards is recognizing that we do have assurance that that we can have assurance, which I do think is different than certainty. Um, so for instance, if I'm a leader of people who are going through an anxious time, you know, it would, it would not be appropriate for me to say everything's going to be okay. Cause I don't know that that's not something I know for, for certain, right? That's right. a certainty that as a leader, I, I want to say that to people, but I don't know that's true, but you know what I can say? I can say, Hey, you know what, no matter how hard this gets, uh, we're going to do, we're going to be in this together and we're going to try to move forward together. And no matter how hard this gets, I believe that God is with us. And so I, I can, I can assure you of that. So you can see the difference between a certainty statement and an assurance statement. Um, there's so many times in leadership where we want to tell people, here's how it's going to go, but we know full well as a leader, we have no idea if that's what's going to unfold. And so I think to say to people, Hey, this is what I think is going to happen. Here's what I'm planning on. We might have to do some experiments, but you know what I know for sure is we're going to learn a lot. And we're going to try to put a posture of learning around this and see if it helps us to either answer some questions or come up with better questions at the end. And you can see how leaning towards that assurance as a leader can help uh, diffuse the anxiety because guess what? Anxiety is also very contagious. It's probably (laughs) the most contagious emotion. Um, But I think that courage and curiosity are also contagious. And so a leader can start by being courageous and having curiosity themselves. And then to really think about how we might maybe even unintentionally be either leaving like leaving people with a sense of false certainty or we're giving people certainty statements in order to try to help bring the anxiety down. But you know what happens when you said this would happen and then it didn't, well, there goes trust and the trust breaks down. And so I think that uh, the more that a leader can cultivate trust with people, the more space and grace they have for pushing people to ask deeper questions because they're going to be able to do that from firm footing instead of a place of anxiety. So I'm trying to think of how a leader can, can uh, create a sense of assurance or, or maybe foster a sense of assurance. I mean, obviously going out and directly, you know, making assuring statements, but would you say maybe modeling, uh, modeling curiosity, modeling, uh, dealing with doubt and anxiety for those who you lead in an, in a work setting appropriate way? Do you think that could be a way that um, could maybe remove some of the anxiety and stigma associated with that? Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's a really good point. Um, and, and I think that everyone needs to think about their own context, right? Each context to contextualize how to, to help people 
lower that anxiety. Um, well, finding out what their anxieties are in the first place might be a good spot too. And seeing if you can either yourself or with a team kind of discover what it is that people are really worried about. Um, even if it's, it feels irrational, like if we can, if we can meet people at that, I think we can really help people get where they need to go. One thing that, that seems to uh, anecdotally come up, uh, I have not conducted a study, uh, but something that anecdotally I hear from friends who do work at faith-based uh, schools and institutions is that uh, sometimes there, there can be an unspoken pressure that, that doesn't actually exist from an administration, but an unspoken pressure that they're supposed to believe certain statements without any mental reservation or believe certain things without any mental reservation whatsoever. And that can create a lot of stress for people who, who are going through times of doubt for whom curiosity could be a, you know, a really great path and, and uh, help them, you know, engage with these doubts. How can leaders create environments that, that help people feel comfortable enough to face their doubts, be honest about them and engage them with curiosity and not feel uh, that they'll be stigmatized for, for dealing with doubt or having questions. Yeah. I, I think the stigma is really real. Um, and being that I'm in a, a the kind of world that you're talking about, uh, there absolutely is an expectation in certain institutions that people, um, believe certain things without reservation. And I, I, I'll just be one to admit that, that, that does not help us foster curiosity, <laughs> that, that reality does not help us with that. Um, but at the same time, I see some of the, the place for it and how it can help some people have, um, it can help some people lower their anxiety around what they can come to expect about a school and what a school is going to talk about and, 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 or any other faith-based institution. Um, however, I think, yeah, as leaders, I think the best thing we can do is to name it to name the stigma and say, I don't want our environment to be one where people who are questioning and doubting are stigmatized. To actually name that, um, I, I found that to be true with other things that are that there's stigmas around. So one thing that I've already mentioned is um, there's some stigma around the integration of psychology with faith. Um, some people have a stigma about counseling and going to therapy and mental illness and some of that stuff. So I find myself being really intentional to talk about that in any space that I can as a leader to say, Hey, um, I, I have a therapist that I go to that's been really helpful for me to work through some of my family systems and come to be a healthy person who can really live out my faith from a healthy perspective. Or, uh, you know, there's many ways that you could respond to dealing with some of these things in your life. And I'll give an example. And one of the examples might be, you could get a counselor right now. Um, I'm talking about that stigma. And so similarly with the stigma of faith questions and doubt, um, I talk about that a lot too. And I just say, hey, you know what? If you're in that season, that's okay. Hey, if you're in that season, I would love for you to talk about that with people who you trust in our organization um, and potentially making yourself available for that as well. In fact, the same study that I'm referring to in the, the Barna study in 2017, uh, it also included some pretty discouraging things about how folks did not feel that they could talk with leaders in their organization, their church, or their faith-based organization about the questions and doubts they had. They felt the stigma was so high that, that if they were going to talk to anybody at all, it was not going to be the people who were in those spaces. And, I, and I'd love for us to be people who um, created space for that and gave people permission to, to ask those questions and permission to say that, that there's, there's a depth of their faith that they could get to if we were to give people the the option to do that. And I guess what I would say to, to anybody who feels like, you know, I, I'm sure there's people listening who are thinking, you know what, I signed that faith statement and I, to work there and I'm not <laughs> sure I think that anymore. And I, I, I hear you. And I think that's a big wrestle for a lot of people. You're not alone in wondering about that. Um, I'd encourage people to talk to someone they feel like they can trust who understands their context about how to handle that. And I think for some people, it does mean that they say, I'm going to start looking for a different spot that does meet, match up with me because I have evolved as a person. It's okay. That's an okay thing. But I know that that brings anxiety for people because thinking about changing a, a role or a place that you love teaching could be really hard. I don't know if that's what people need to do, but I think that some of the courage is being willing to say, uh, it matters to me that I'm in a spot where I can pursue my curiosity. And maybe, maybe that means a change. Maybe that just means a conversation. I don't know what it is for every person, but just know that you're not alone and wondering about that. I think a lot of people do. You know, I, I would love to believe and hope that most leaders, they want to be people who, who 
you know, their followers or those who report to them feel like they can come and talk to you. It'd be terrible to, to be someone who people are scared to, yeah. to come and ask questions to. <laughs> that would not be, yeah, but, not be pleasant. But we, we all have to remember that if we have positional authority, that there is a certain aspect of that that makes us unapproachable to That's some true, people. yeah. Um, and that's just what power does. It's not, it, power is something that is very difficult in our world today, obviously. And so um, that that's, that's real. And so we have to, we have to go above and beyond to communicate that we are open to those conversations. And then people might still be a little bit intimidated, but um, the best we can do is to recognize our power and try to recognize that it's always present in the room and those conversations and how to be somebody who does what we can to let some of that go and to put that down and say, I'm, I'm choosing to, enter into this with you as a, as a, a friend or a mentor, not just somebody who has positional authority in your space. That's great advice. So we talked a bit about leading adults. Let's talk for a moment about children. I'm curious, uh, you know, as, as I was reading your book and as I was thinking about curiosity, uh, how do we balance providing children with faith, structure, faith structures and narratives that they can understand and engage with, um, with also providing them uh, with, with the comfort level that they need uh, and, and support and being curious and wondering and dealing with their doubt. And yeah. do you have any you know, thoughts on that? And then do you recommend any frameworks specifically for supporting children and healthy spiritual development? Yeah, that's a really good question because um, it, it just really so goes hand in hand with the development of a child, of course. Um, I, in the book, I talk about how studies have been done about what they call a God concept. So taking, taking religious experience out of the equation and saying, for a child, when do they come to this concept that there is, and using the word God to, to represent uh, some, some being that's bigger than me that I, and bigger, you know, bigger than I can understand. Um, they, they've found these studies that kids have this sense of that even as two and three years old. It's so interesting to me, even if they don't grow up in a religious household where the word God is ever mentioned. And so um, you can read about how they did those studies. But I think what that says to me is that at a very young age, kids are starting to come to their understanding of who God is. Um, and I think what I encourage people to think about in their life is that it's a never ending pursuit of their understanding of God, because as they expand as a person, how much they can understand about God expands as a person. Um or how much God is expanding as their person is expanding at the same time. And so I think with kids, you know, anybody who's been, that's in education knows about the spaces in which kids are more concrete when they're able to understand things that are less concrete and what ages they're able to do that, of course. And so I think taking those things into account is super important. Whenever we're teaching kids in my, in my church context, we're thinking about how they really need to, to, to think about things concretely when they're really young. And we want to, unfold almost, unfold this understanding of God as their brains are able to, to comprehend it. Um, and one way that adults can be really good at that is to, to admit that they don't have it all quote unquote figured out because God is so huge. And so they're, they're looking forward to the rest of their life in understanding God as they develop. And so I think with kids, um, it's okay that stories are simplified. Sometimes we joke about how, oh, well, they didn't tell that part of the story in Sunday school. Well, yeah. Well, they were a child. You know, they were a child. They're they're understanding it very concretely, um, and the, the that's okay. And as they get older, let's unfold more of the story to them. So, the framework that we are we use the most in my context that I know a lot of um, children's curriculum and other spaces would use is a is a narrative curriculum understanding. So, the phrase that's often used is the the big God story. So of course, there's no harm in talking about the Bible, is, but we say the Bible is where the big God story is. And we are people who are living in the midst of the big God story. And we get to choose if we want our life to be a part of that story or not. And so that's pretty vague, but it's also, I mean, I've had conversations, actual conversations with four-year-olds who can talk about that with me. They say, well, that's in the big God story. And they can talk about the timeline of the big God story. And, oh, we're still in the big God story. Is the big God story over yet? No, we know what happens in the future of the big God story. You know, they, they can really grasp some of that stuff. However, they're going to, yeah, they're really going to, they're going to, um, catch on to the little stories in the midst of it, right? They're going to remember the Noah's Ark stories and every, just like anyone else. But I think helping them see that those little stories are a part of this bigger story that they're a part of um, personalizes it for them, 
shows them, uh, puts them on the map, right? But also keeps God as the primary actor, the primary agent, like I was talking about earlier, that God is the, is the primary actor and all these other people in the Bible are second characters, they're sub characters and their, their whole thing, the whole story is about God doing things and humans trying to figure out how to respond to that God. And oh, guess what? That's what life's about. God's doing things and humans are trying to figure out how to respond to that God that might be pursuing them and leading them in different ways. And so narrative, I think, you know, I think we're really wired. I think God made us that way to be wired for story and wired for narrative. And that's why you can stick a kid in front of a, a really great story. You know, they could, they'll listen to a chapter book when they can't even read because the story, if it's a really good story, right? Because they love that and they're so drawn to it. Um, but if it's not a good story, you, you lost them. So I just think, I think the story of the Christian faith is really captivating. I think, um, I mean, that's a pastor thing to say. I get that, but it is, <laughs> it is like full of everything a good story needs to be made of, you know, um, any, anybody who studies, studies narrative would say that it's a pretty, it's got all the gripping things that are necessary for a good story. And I think we also are wired to want to live a good story and to be a part of something meaningful. And so I think for little kids that especially um, when we're in educational settings or church settings, like help them see their part of the story. Now you don't have to grow up to be a part of the story. You were born into the story and that's, that validates them and their role in the organization and in the space in ways that I think causes them to lean in most of the time. If we can give them that true experience of you're, you're a part of, I mean, my church, for instance, we will say, you're not the future of the church. You're the church now. <laughs> you're here. <laughs> yeah. And so the future of the church are these unborn kids that aren't here yet, <laughs> the, the, or the people who haven't joined us yet. But uh, if they're here now, then they are. They're us. And so giving them that uh, validation, I think, is really important. That's great. I I really love the idea of the big God story and and children seeing themselves as being part of the story. So another idea in your book uh, that you talk about pretty early on, um, and I feel like we've hit on in, in a lot of ways, but one another idea in the book was this idea of the wall. Um, and you say in the book that the wall is a time when we can no longer hide from the questions and doubts and we begin to confront what is really going on deep inside of us. I'm, I'm curious if you could maybe just unpack a little bit about what you mean by the wall in the book, talk a little more about it, but then also how can leaders um, in faith-based schools so support faculty and students in in becoming wall breakers and not just people who get stuck. Yeah. Yeah. So this concept comes from uh, a book called the critical journey where uh, actually a woman that I've gotten to know now, um, her name's Janet Hagberg wrote, I mean, I think she wrote that book when I maybe was two years old. <laughs> okay. But uh, <laughs> it's, it's actually a, a stages, stages of faith and a faith development theory based off of Fowler's stages of development, which is why I love it so much. And, um, what she's talking about there is that there's different things we experience in our life and different things that we go through in our lives that can be, you can kind of name them in general stages of faith. And when we truly start to uh, integrate our faith on our own, which for most people happens sometime in the teen years, early twenties, somewhere in there, uh, when we start to do that, we can often, if not always run into what she calls a wall. And so um, sometimes the, just the depth of the level of uncertainty, realizing just how much uncertainty you have in life could be that wall. <laughs> That's enough to be a wall in itself. Um, uh, you, and you find that a lot when people start to grow in their critical thinking. All of a sudden, they realize how much they don't know and how much some of those pat answers and those more concrete statements don't really encompass the complexity of life. They hit this wall, proverbial wall. Of course, other things that could be a wall would be... Um, difficult things that happen in their life, um, experiencing loss, experiencing rejection, um, things that lots of times people experience in their life um, as little kids even, um, and trying to come to a place where you're really working through what that meant and what that experience was or is feels like you've hit a wall. Um, and I, I think it's a great illustration because I think it does sometimes leave you um, emotionally feeling as though you've slammed into something. And there's kind of this question then when you hit that wall, I bet a lot of people are thinking now about the walls that they've hit in their life. Um, it could be vocational, it could be relational, it could be spiritual. And um, it's, it's, it's a question, it brings everybody to a question. How are they going to respond when they hit that wall? Are they going to say, well, that was really, uh, that, that hurt and try to never have that happen again? Are they going to try to figure out if there's a way they can go around it or over it or under it? Um, or are they going to do what I would say is the best option, the difficult work of breaking through the wall brick by brick and examining what you're breaking down and saying, well, wow, that 
you know, I had never thought about grief that way or until I experienced this loss, I didn't realize the fragility of life. And you can see how that just unfolds this, you know, layers upon layers of questions. And I just see those like almost like these bricks that you just have to pull apart and, and get to a place where you can move through the wall and on the other side. Um, and that wall doesn't go away, right? It's just that you're on the other side of it. Um, one author called it the far side of complexity. And the reality of life is that we'll hit multiple walls in different seasons. Some of them will take longer to go through brick by brick, um, but some of them will be easier. And we start to get um, muscles for figuring out how to work through walls with brick by brick. And we learn how to do it in a different way. Um, but some people really choose to try to avoid those things altogether. And those folks are the ones that end up kind of getting stalled in what Hagberg and Gulick call stage three, um, which isn't bad, but it, it, is, it is a spot where they don't, um, the fourth stage is called the inward journey, where they don't really go into the depth of meaning of their life. And, you know, I, I as a leader, want people to go to that place, to have that depth of meaning. But it does mean that they're going to have to choose to do the hard work of going through the wall brick by brick. Uh, one of my favorite quotes from the book, um, mm-hmm. you said, moving forward doesn't mean that there is nothing to fear, but staying where you but, but staying where you are will be the beginning of the end of faith and you can actually, the end of faith that you can actually live with. It's not a good explanation, or sorry, it's not a good expansion plan to stay where you are. You need to pass through. And I love that. But with that idea though, you know, you were talking about people building muscles to, you know, deal with walls. What's on the other side of a wall? Is it uh, this peaceful, joyful promised land where you have no more questions? What do you get rewarded with for, for getting to the other side? Yeah, you know, I mean, it depends on the person, but um, I, I genuinely think there's a sense of personal accomplishment. Like I worked through that. I got, I was on the other side of something that I thought I couldn't get through. And I was able to get to a spot where I, I'm on the other side of that specific wall. It doesn't mean that I don't have some scars, but I did it. Um, I think on the other side of that, there's a sense of, for many people, a sense of peace, just a sense that, hey, look, I, I still see how complex this situation is, but I feel a sense of peace because I've really thought through and really um, followed my curiosity in some ways. I think that there's also, um, when, when you come to a, like I use that word expansion there, um, we like to think of growth as more linear, but I really think it is more kind of like expanding. Uh, and when you expand as a person, the, another image I think of is like wearing a coat that's too tight and you like bust out of the coat, (laughs) but, (laughs) but then you have, then, then you start wondering, well, maybe there's a new coat that I should be getting here. Maybe there's some new things I should be trying on. I think when you get to that deeper spot, you might realize that there's some things that were questions behind the question, behind the question that you didn't even know were there. And some of those are actually kind of exciting. I found a lot of people uh, have a renewed sense of purpose and meaning when they get through the wall. There's a sense that they say, hey, I want to take, uh, you know, maybe maybe I want to make a career change. Maybe I want to take my career and do something more with it. I've kind of just let it, let myself coast, but I want to be somebody who's a leader in my field. Or that you can just see these different things that happen in people's life that this energy that comes from that, it's not the same as just being happy or content, but that there's this peace and then this sense of, energy to want to take what they've learned by going through the wall and uh, share that with other people or uh, let that be a catalyst for their purpose and meaning in their life. So, um, gosh, I'm just reflecting on a lot of what we've hit on today. <laughs> there's, there's, there's a lot of great things to think about. We've kind of no, covered right. a lot of stuff here. <laughs> <laughs> when we talk about practicing our faith, what are just practical ways that we can develop a life of curiosity um, for ourselves and um, help put those on display for, for students and coworkers in an educational setting? Yeah, I mean, we've never had a time where we have more access to uh, interesting information than right now. And I just think that um, being a person who is in a learning posture around the things that are going on today and the things that um, people are learning around the world and what that means, I mean, I just think putting that as a part of your life that you want to read something that you've that's in a totally different field or you want to read something that really... Um, we have those moments, right, where we're like, oh, that's, that sounds interesting, but then we don't act on it. Uh, follow that curiosity and let that be something that leads you towards a depth of meaning and a deeper understanding of something. Um, I really believe it's contagious. And so if we were to go there as people, as leaders, as teachers, I, I think that it would carry over into these other spaces in our life where we might share and want to encourage people to, to also pursue the things that 
pique their interest and pique their curiosity. Um, I think it's generative. I think questions are generative. I mean, the, the word quest is in the word question. <laughs> it takes you somewhere. It generates a journey. And I think uh, in some ways, if someone's listening to this and they feel like they're not, really not a curious person or they haven't been for a long time, um, there's just beginning to take those steps. And, and I think it's pretty generative. It starts to grow in your life uh, if you're willing to go there. So pick something that sounds a little bit interesting. And, and if there's fear around pursuing it, um, summon a little bit of courage, you know, there's still fear sometimes when you're courage doesn't mean there's no fear. It just means you're going to keep going anyway. Um, and just go for it and see what you might learn. Okay. So we always end our podcast with the following questions and they are these, what should people be reading? What should people be listening to and how can people connect with you? Um, you know, oh man, there's just so many things to be reading. Um, if, if you're a person who's leading young people in a faith space specifically, I would really encourage, um, really anything by Barna they're, they're doing, that's the research group that I mentioned in the book. Um, one of them and, um, David Kinnaman, who's the CEO of Barna right now, he wrote a book just, ah, I think it was maybe last year called faith for exiles faith for exiles. And his subtitle is five ways for a new generation to follow Jesus. And he calls it digital Babylon. <laughs> and uh, I just really love how he talks about what it means for young people and, and people in their twenties and thirties too, but to, to choose a vibrant faith. And um, I think that when I think about curiosity, I also think about there's other factors that lead people towards a vibrant faith and that this book kind of outlines some of them. I really appreciate that. Um, I also love anything about emotional intelligence. I mentioned that earlier. Um, really feel like that is, there's quite a, quite a few things. Um, Coleman is kind of the, the person who writes the most about emotional intelligence, but one of my favorite books is called Primal Leadership um, by Daniel Goleman. And uh, I just love that specific integration of emotional intelligence and leadership. Um, so yeah, that, that would be something that I would suggest. And um, as far as listening to and things like that, I listen to a lot of different podcasts and leadership podcasts and things like that. Um, Carrie Newhoff is a guy that whose podcast I really appreciate because he's, he's speaking to faith leaders, but also people who lead in other spaces as well. So I really appreciate his, um, his podcast. And then the new podcast that Brene Brown has out called Unlocking Us is excellent for anybody trying to think about our emotional well-being and how that integrates with our leadership and just being a healthy human. So I love that. That's great. Well, uh, I mean, those all sound like wonderful recommendations and we'll put those in the show notes and also we'll put a link to your podcast. It's a leadership podcast that I've gotten a lot yep. out of and we'll uh, link to yeah, that Yeah, Lead well. Stories podcast with my friend, Joe Saxton. Well, thank you so much for being with us today, Stephanie. It's been an absolute joy to talk and learn uh, with you and from you. And uh, we wish you the, the just a wonderful day, a wonderful week. Thanks so much, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Full Stack Educator Podcast. We hope that today's conversation helped you grow as an independent school leader. Be sure to check out our show notes for links to resources mentioned in the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, rate it, leave a review, and share it with a friend. Episodes of this podcast are released bi-weekly. You can follow and engage with Matt McGee and Michael Amusio on LinkedIn. Thank you.